Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hi there and welcome to Tech Radio in association with Fidelity Investments. We are the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you news in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, you can hear Tech Radio on air with RTE Friday evenings or anytime you like with your favourite Apple, Google or Spotify podcasting apps. We also keep you bang up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Our programme is kindly sponsored by Fidelity Investments, who are now hiring for tech roles here in Ireland. Apply now at fidelityinvestments.ie where you can virtually join a global leader in fintech innovation from the safety of your own home. That website again, fidelityinvestments.ie. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is episode 827 and joining me as always is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. Uh, Niall, not so much a tech story as a science story uh, leading out this week and it is like the biggest story of easily, I was going to say of, of the uh, uh, the century, but I will go so far as to say of both centuries. Well, I mean, we're, we're only a, a hair's breadth into the current century. So, yeah, why not? Uh, to, first of all, have you consulted the green list of countries we're actually allowed, in inverted commas, to, to go to? Listen, I've given up on any chance of going anywhere. <laughs> so That's pretty reasonable. The, yeah. the list, I don't want to know the list because then that just gives me a glimmer of hope for some places. Well, you know, if you want to go to Estonia or San Marino or Monaco, now now is your window of opportunity. So Norway apparently is is up there as well. But mm. I, I went reading through it and I was like, do, do you know what? <laughs> I can't see, I can't see many of these countries getting a, a COVID tourist bump from from Ireland. But no. hey, we got to start somewhere. So anyway, yes, the big story of the week. Uh, we have not one but. Two promising trials uh, in looking for um, vaccine for COVID-19, one happening in Oxford University and the other by a company called AstraZeneca, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, Their study is going on in China. And one of the things you have to look for uh, in assessing the validity of a study is how big the sample size is. I mean, if you look at... uh, um, a hair commercial or something like that. You know, it's like 70% of women agreed and it'll have the sample size down the bottom of the screen. It'll say 100 women asked, right? It's not a great result. These studies that uh, are being conducted at the moment, uh, they're using samples of 500,000 uh, people. So these are much more powerful. Uh, and, you know, even the Lancet are behind this. They're, they're very impressed with what's going on. Their editor-in-chief, Richard Horton, said, if we have a vaccine by the end of 2021, we will have been doing incredibly well. And it looks like we will be doing incredibly well. Do you want to guess how many studies are going on in the world at the moment looking for a COVID-19 vaccine? I'm going to be stupid with my answer. I'm going to say like a billion because whoever actually gets that vaccine is going to be the richest man on the planet. Okay, there's 197 actual projects, actual okay. candidates out there to become uh, COVID-19 vaccines that are that are in development. Um, so this is this is all good news. This is all progress. Now, of course, our, our own uh, chief medical officer, our acting chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Roland Glynn, said that realistically it takes between five and ten years to develop a vaccine. So looking forwards, you know, a year is truly remarkable progress. But I, you also have to start looking at the food chain of who actually gets these doses 
if they pass muster, you know, if they mm. get through all the all the testing and it's and it's discovered that yes, we have a viable vaccine, let's start rolling it out. Um, Oxford has done something very very uh, clever. They all they already have ninety million doses uh, produced, so they're kind of waiting for an all clear before they can start distributing them. Uh, AstraZeneca claimed to will claim to have something in the region of a billion doses, um, but they're going to target what they regard as low and middle income countries. So they'll, they'll be looking at, you know, India at that direction, uh, whereas Oxford will be looking more towards the UK, US, EU. Uh, and of course, America has invested three and a half billion in three candidate studies. Um, so you can imagine where they think their investment is going to go and it surely isn't beyond 50 odd states. Let me bring this right home to you sitting in the uh, in the COVID kitchen and to myself yep. here in the studio, all right? Um, when the vaccine arrives, mm. do you expect it to be made available by the government? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yes. it's... <laughs> And if the government go, do you know what? We've spent so money on uh, so much money on trying to keep people employed and, and and extra whatever for medical. We've run out of money. You need to buy your own vaccine. How much would you pay for that vaccine? How much would you pay? Yeah. My goodness. Um, you see, this this really depends on the drug companies, doesn't it? Because I mean, in America, like the cost of medication is absolutely ridiculous; like it's sky high. Mm-hmm. Um, over here, uh, but mind you, they're they have private healthcare, and that's what absorbs a lot of their costs. Over here, I mean, you'd be used to going what spending fifty, seventy euro on your consultation, and you get your jab, and you're delighted with yourself, and mm-hmm. off you go. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're used to. Um, if somebody said, okay, it'll be 200 euro, please. Uh, are you likely to go, I'll take my chances. I'll hope this herd immunity thing kicks in and that'll do me. Uh, or are you concerned that, well, I've got a family that I don't want to pass this along to. I've got elderly relatives. I've got whatever. Do you know what? It's, it's worth the investment. Mm. Uh, for me personally, name your price. I'll do it. I've got, I've, I've got elderly relatives that I, that I want to see. I've got, you know, nieces and nephews that I would quite like to spend time with. It's a quality of life thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. Listen, let's move on to uh, all the stories of the week. And Uber, uh, one of the one of the huge success stories in tech world, uh, are back in the dock again. What have they been doing wrong this time? Uh, no, it's not this time. It's something they've been doing wrong all along, according to this latest case. Uh, Uber has been losing cases all over the shop in Europe and in America. And it comes down to their fundamental uh, belief that they are a platform and not an employer. Right. So according to Uber, we've developed this wonderful platform. You as a, an average person in the street, you can come to us and use your use our platforms subject to certain terms and conditions. And, you know, the understanding that you can uh, provide this certain level of service, be it, you know, a car, or whatever hours you're doing or making sure that you're accumulating uh, a certain number of reviews or even just that you're out driving. You know, all these things are very important to Uber, maintaining a certain level of uh, cachet with their brand. So, however, this always comes up that if you have somebody that's using your platform that is paying you for doing it and you're not paying them uh, or looking after them in the way of benefits or anything like that, uh, are you actually employing people uh, because you have control 
control over effectively their working conditions uh, and resultantly how much they actually get paid uh, because an Uber driver can't set their own pricing. So do you actually employ these people? Uh, So, so far, when it goes in front of the courts, the answer is yes, they are an employer. Uh, And they even went to the uh, Court of Final Appeal in France, who decided in a in a landmark decision, really, they de- they described the Uber driver relationship as a relationship of subordination, right? If Uber decides to change their terms and conditions, their drivers can't say, no, we don't really want to sign up to that. Um, they're stuck with it. Uh, and this is the latest in a long line of losses. You know, they got stripped of their license in London. Um, in Canada, drivers are indeed considered employers. Um, and the Supreme Court in England this week is already hearing one case in that department. Now, the latest case, which is being fought out in the courts in Amsterdam, because Uber's European headquarters in Amsterdam, and this is a GDPR uh, case, so it goes to the country that the company is operating in. So it's effectively a GDPR issue. Two drivers from the UK are saying, are saying look, we want access to see how the Uber algorithms work because we're at the mercy of their algorithms, but we don't know what happens. We don't know what kind of data is being collected on us, how it's being weighted, uh, and how it affects the work that we're allocated through the platform. So if somebody tags us with, you know, was rude on this on this ride, does that offset a five-star review? We, we just don't know. So this is all about opening up what they call black box AI, just finding out how things actually work. And this goes to Article 22 of the GDPR, uh, Paragraph 1, and which basically says, if you uh, don't want your data to be processed automatically by a machine, by an AI, you can request to have that information actu- actually looked after by a human. Fairly simple request, but actually has massive implications for uh, for GDPR and how AI is used. However, there are um, there are loopholes in this, so this is kind of a stress test case in a lot of respects because you know central to GDPR is having control over the data you submit and how it's used. Um, Uber have been pretty poor about. Uh, giving people access to the data that they are actually collecting on, uh, coll- collecting on them, uh, either they're ignoring requests or they're uh, giving out, you know, uh, information that's very dated or just, you know, dragging their heels uh, on this in a, in a big way. But there is a loophole in Article 22 uh, that says, do you know what, if you have consented to terms and conditions that says, this is how we're going to, um, this is how your data is going to be used, uh, well, then you don't really have a leg to stand on. However, if you don't know in the first place the nature of the way your data is going to be used, herein lies the herein lies the problem. Herein lies the debate. So, Dusty, platform or service provider? What do you think? I don't know because it's, it's it really is a very complicated uh, legal area, and I, I you started off by saying is Uber an employer or not? And almost if Uber was the employer, well, then I would say whatever Uber data Uber is generating on you, like self-generating that you haven't given it, well, that, that belongs to Uber. But if Uber is not your employer, <laughs> well, then who does the data belong to? So, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm going I, I, to come down on the side of the drivers uh, because Uber can change their terms and conditions if they want. 
Mm-hmm. You can't set your price. You have to have a, an well, Uber. Listen, if, you, if you're talking about the deal car. with Uber and stuff like that, I'm very much on the side of the drivers, all right? Mm. Because they're not independent uh, uh, workers. As you say, they're not able to set their own rate. Uh, they're not able to set their own standards for all of those reasons. If you want to work for Uber, there's a, there's a whole list of things that you have to follow. But you're mm. still not considered a, a, an employee. But it, on the data side of things, that's 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 what I thought you were asking me about. Um, if I, I think if Uber were the employer, I think if an employer has data on you, which they have generated themselves, well, well, then it's their data. Okay. But then, but then again, I suppose you're getting into all kinds of things. But what if somebody made a, a, a nasty report about me and I want to be able to see it? <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, these <laughs> things are, are kind of anonymous. You mm. don't, uh, I don't know the extent to which you have come back on it. Mm. But if you look at those three things, you, you know, you can't manage your own clients um, because the app does that. Mm. Um, you can't set your own prices because Uber does that. And they do things like surge pricing, mm. uh, which people are not very fond of it all. And you can't choose to, to how to execute a task because um, you basically, uh, the, way, the way Uber works is that it's, it's basically like a hackney cab. You know, you order it, it comes to you directly, you get in, you right. say where you want to go. Yep. The driver might say, actually, no, uh, I don't want to take you there because it's a hundred miles out of my, mm. my you know, it, it'll take me hours to complete this journey. I, I, I can't take this, this ride, sorry. But, you know, you might have a perfectly valid reason for turning down a ride. But that could go against you. Uh, absolutely, and 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 they frequently do, from uh, uh, from what I hear. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of. I was thinking of uh, like you know somebody who has a new a new product, okay, and it's like if you want to sell that into one of the big supermarket chains, all right. So Lidl mm. and and uh, and Tesco operate across multiple countries, okay. Uh, if you want to get your product in there, you've got to follow a whole lot of rules. And you've mm. got to do it at an amazingly discounted price, all right? Mm. Because that's how it works. So you're left yeah. between that little thing. Okay, well, do I work independently where I'm completely in control or do I get into bed with these guys and follow all the rules, but I will get a lot more work? And possibly it's the same if you are driving a car for a living. You are free to work on your own and do your own thing or you can make use of the Uber platform or or the other platform. We have our own Irish ones, of course, and everything as well. So We do. And our own platforms are vastly superior mm. in that, you know, there's much more, um, uh, much more visibility. Um, I find that the functionality is very good and there's an awful lot to be said for being able to order a cab uh, and have them come to your door and go. Um, and I personally recommend Link, which is a Irish app. Um, so uh, download that you will be very well looked after uh, and of, of course you're supporting the indigenous taxi industry we have a deregulated taxi industry I don't really see much use for private car hire but a lot of taxi drivers they do sign up for multiple platforms so some guys will you know they'll drive as a taxi during the weekdays but they'll do uber on the weekends which i think is kind of interesting but there you go it certainly is all right listen that is it for the news for this week and i'll thank you as always um a quick thanks to our sponsor just before we move on fidelity investments as we know we've been talking about all the time the times are uncertain but your job does not have to be fidelity investments are hiring for tech roles here in ireland FidelityInvestments.ie is where you can apply to virtually join a global leader in fintech innovation from the safety of your own home. 
magic words fidelityinvestments.ie to find out more this is tech central your weekly tech podcast from ireland's techcentral.ie the pandemic is speeding up how companies are embracing artificial intelligence but why are some large businesses failing to get the most out of it John Clancy is co-founder and CEO of Chatspace, a Galway company working on developing the world's most experienced AI project manager. And he spoke with Niall Kitson about how big business is failing on big ideas. John, I guess the first thing we all want to know is where does AI fit into the new world of work? Because so far we've heard an awful lot of the promise of having the the easy stuff taken off our shoulders so we can get on and, and do work that's more creative. But I think this was a paradigm that was invented with a view to helping teams in the office environment. But what's going to happen now that we reckon that the future of work isn't in the office, but at home? Yeah, it's a very good uh, question, Niall. Um, you know, one important point that I always kind of uh, refer to in, uh, before I get into this is that, you know, artificial intelligence and its place in this new world, it's just a tool uh, like many um, other technology tools. Um, but you need to understand, you know, how best to use it, uh, uh, particularly when it applies to your own business um, and how it best it suits you and your team in order to get the most out of it. COVID-19 has led to an AI and digital acceleration that we believe was going to happen uh, anyway and was happening, but just not at the pace it's happening now. And what we have found is at the very start of COVID, we repurposed one of our previous products in order to, because if you think about the world we're in now, you're looking at distributed leadership from a manager's point of view, and you're looking at hybrid teams, uh, part-time in the office, part-time at home. And that probably will be the balance, I think, over the next 12 to 18 months. And what AI is very good at is um, if you have a part of your job that uh, is not, if you're a knowledge worker, for example, which most people at home are, um, you don't want to be, you know, looking for um, uh, tools to make you be able to deliver your job. You want, and that's where AI is very good at. You know, as an example, one of our clients, we built what we'd call a Q&A capability. But if you are at home and you're looking for um, a document, a piece of research with very, very large enterprises. It sounds very simple if you're in a small company, but for very large companies, this becomes a big challenge. And what we do with our technologies and what uh, an AI can do is that it'll do that heavy lifting. It'll empower you to self-serve by just asking a question. I want the latest report on. I would like to know what our paternity policy is on something, whether it's HR, whether it's you know operational related um, and, and AI will very effectively go off and find that document, find the latest version, extract out what you're looking for and present it back to you. So you feel that connection to the workplace. And I think feeling that connection going forward, it'll really differentiate companies that succeed and companies that just, you know, um, just tread by in the next, I think, 18 months. And one of the main projects that you're you're working on is the idea of developing the world's most experienced uh project manager and it's important to say most experienced as opposed to best or first or anything like that and I think there's a really interesting history in that uh, approach that you're taking uh, uh, with its roots in, in Google I believe Yeah well we about 12 months ago one of our one of our largest clients came to us um, because now and more than ever uh, with the advent of COVID-19 and this new normal that everybody refers to 
project management is integral to enterprise. It's integral to how we work, how I work. The majority of work now and going forward is going to continue to be task and project orientated. However, like studies going back for the last number of years uh, have shown that over half of all projects underperform and a third fail. And there are many reasons to these, you know, and typically uh, intervention in many cases when projects have failed uh, is too late. And it leads to increased what they call back to green costs, increased risk reviews, increased analysis of a particular account or project manager, because the predictability of most projects is down to the, uh, the tacit knowledge and the ability of the project manager or the account manager to deliver. But it is subject to optimism and pessimism. And this was the problem that one of our largest clients came to us and we said, look, we can create a number one, um, uh, an algorithm, a machine learning um, algorithm based on your data that will give you uh, data driven insights uh, that will in order you or empower you to uh, be alerted to risk before it happens. And by doing this, it, it shifts the conversation in an enterprise away from focusing on micromanagement to focusing on clients and opportunity because it frees up time and it frees up time to people to be more efficient at work and critically in this new world to be able to self-serve because it's not going to replace the project manager. But what it will do is it'll give them a simple and we're doing this in a simple traffic light system because that's what they're, they were used to is to say, look, we believe this project your project manager is saying it's okay. We believe it's going amber because of the thousands of other projects we have analyzed over the past two years. And here's why, and here's where your attention and focus should go now before it becomes a problem and escalates. So where do you see the actual role of the human project manager then inserting itself into this uh, new workflow? If, if you have an AI with access to so much more knowledge in the field that is much um, potentially more accurate or more competent at predicting when a project is uh, on the turn or on, on the verge of failure, do, do, does this mean that project management gets outsourced um, uh, that it loses that human factor completely? Or again, do you flip it back to the idea of the AI, the AI is the tool and you still need someone actually, you know, using it in order to get the best out, out of it? I, I would say the latter, um, because primarily like routine work and heavy lifting uh, for anyone's job is not something that people want to aspire to. Like as a project manager, you don't want to be constantly saying, oh, I better do this. I better uh, send this email, schedule this meeting, uh, organize this risk review. If, if an AI can take away the routine and make you more meaningful at work, then you're able to make more of a contribution um, from an operational point of view. And on the other side, from a customer's point of view, you're able, you have more time with customers. So you're able to look at opportunity rather than you know, firefighting all the time. If you know that, okay, I'm doing my job and I'm, I'm focused uh, on my client and there's another, there's an AI in the background that's looking at the data to keep me on track, I think that'll give uh, definitely project managers more freedom to be more creative um, and create new revenue opportunities for their customers and for their company they're working for. Because now, and like we do talk a lot about, you know, how things have changed, it's that digital connection. And whether it is a digital connection to uh, an end customer and you're selling a product, or if it's a digital connection from the company to their employees, the more companies that are able to uh, provide their service or provide their product digitally 
to their uh, end users and using like intelligent technologies of which AI is just one in order to do this. I think they're the ones that are going to grow and succeed, uh, especially uh, in the short term, because nobody knows, you know, we don't know what the future is. We can't even see three to six months out of what this is going to look like. But it's that approach of making sure that the more digitally focused we get, the more focused we become on people because it's there to guide and help. Not the, It's not going to replace, in my lifetime, my opinion would be it's not going to replace uh, project managers, but it'll certainly make their jobs easier. Two fields that uh, have popped up again and again in the reading on this that are benefiting from AI, one of which is pharma, which absolutely makes sense given the absolutely millions of peer-reviewed studies that are out there that are constantly being updated, research is constantly being built upon, and you can obviously see the, the need for massive amounts of compute power and a very finding better and better uh, interfaces to deal with, to extract and, and to interpret information. But at the ground level, people are also starting to use AI more in retail as well, aren't they? Oh, they certainly are. And, you know, if you even everyone's experience regarding shopping online, regarding Netflix, you're getting your personalized movies. And this is going to become, I, th- I believe, more and more prevalent um, when we look at the whole IoT uh, the, um, the internet of things when it comes to connected devices in the home. You know, people may look at this now and say, would I be able to ask, my, my fridge knows when I'm running out of milk. Um, will I be able to talk to my fridge? All these technologies are there already. This is not, you know, cutting edge anymore, but I think they'll become more mainstream because uh, as one one of my clients put it to me is that people don't like to touch things anymore. People are very conscious. Of, so if I can talk to a device and if I can, uh, whether I'm asking it for something personal or whether I'm at work and I can say, can you give me uh, my Monday report? I want to find out about X, Y, and Z. If I'm able to use either talk to it or you know text it on my uh, on my uh, smartphone, I think that um, hands off approach. The reality is that's going to become uh, you know more and more prevalent, uh, both I think as consumers, but also um, at work, because Alexa is part of everyone's house. I mean, whether you use Alexa or you use Google Home, I mean, people are becoming used to that. Um, and in the car, I mean, you're going to have cars that are, it's already BMW have done lots of work in the space, um, scheduling meetings as you're on the fly in your car. I mean, they want to connect, you know, into all of your collaboration tools, into your uh, work environment so that the car becomes the extension of the office. Um, and it is that ability for um, a computer to be able to understand through natural language understanding what you're saying and what's the meaning behind what you're saying and create some action from that. And whether whether we use it at the enterprise world or whether consumers use it in their day to day life, I think it's definitely going to become more and more ubiquitous. Yeah, just uh, seeing as the likes of um, Alexa and Siri and Cortana are entering the zeitgeist as, as brands in themselves when when we're in a as a, a zeitgeist that also relies on personalization, are we going to see versions of these AIs? become personalized to ourselves or we might even decide to rebrand them, rechristen them, give them different voices, but still have that underlying stack uh, still there. Yes. In a, in a simple answer, yes, I think a personalized experience because AI lends itself to this world. The personalization behind um, many of your recommendations is AI driven already. And the expectations that people have as consumers they're also um, have as uh, employees. And we try and bring that experience to the workplace where if, if a project manager or a CEO or 
uh, as uh, a CFO is logging into our technology at work, they all get a personalized view. Yeah, like a CEO will not want to see the detailed granularity that would say an account manager wants to see, but he would definitely like a dashboard of the whole picture. Tell me about all my projects in the company. Are we, how are we going between, you know, budgeted revenue versus actual revenue? What do I need to be concerned about? You know, what's forecasting, what's coming down the line? So that personalization, I think, is going to become more and more prevalent. And it, look, a lot of people don't like it, I think, because I think a lot of companies have gotten it wrong. And, you know, we've all had the experience going online or talking to Siri about, you know, going on holidays and then suddenly you log on the Internet and you're followed by ads, you know, about holidays. I think it's going to have to, you know, move the experience is going to have to get better. And what we try and do in our world of enterprise is make that experience around AI as good as it possibly can be so that people will actually use it. Because if you're introducing another layer of technology like nobody's interested. It has to make an impact. And we like to think that, you know, for us, the kind of our vision at people at work is that make them be their creative best. You know, the data is there. So instead of, you know, uh, we, we look at the approach that we go to where the data resides. You know, we don't have to, and we give our clients the power to run these models. Um, because unless people start doing it for themselves, and data, as you well know, Niall, is like a, the most important asset um, any brand or any company has on earth. So like we give them the ability to do it. Like we automate this approach so we can remove the layer, the requirement um, for data scientists so they can just do it themselves, you know, and have that personalized experience by, by self-service, by just asking um, for the report or the data that they're looking for. One problem that I imagine that that is quite u- unique, well, in a sense, unique to, to you as a company that in that you're looking at large business, at large enterprises, is that you, you have the common language of the company, but you're still dealing with cross-cultural teams. So you, you have things like natural language processing that must be a huge problem when you're dealing with internationally centralized teams. It is. And, you know, natural language um, processing and natural language understanding is um, if you think about where the world is right now, you have East versus West and there's a race and they're having that battle has been played out. Um, but the great thing is they're all publishing white papers uh, on the latest research in the space. And as a startup, if you have the, the team and the intelligence built into uh, internally that you're able to join the dots a little bit differently than somebody else. We don't own the space of NLU, but we certainly and the, the beauty about NLU is that that more or less has been cracked. Um, and it's understanding the meaning, which was the biggest challenge, not just what somebody's saying, but what's the meaning behind that? And how can you create something, an action out of that? Because at scale, and the biggest challenge uh, with AI is when it comes to scaling AI, for AI to work in a lab or AI to work in a you know a proof of concept uh, are one set of challenges, but the other set of challenges, which um, we're kind of uh, developing at the moment ourselves is, scale it uh, because when you working with companies that have over you know 100 200,000 employees this has this can't fall over this has to work people are relying on it simultaneously and that is a key challenge I think as we go um, forward and companies that are able to do the because as I it's, as I just touched on it's that battle is going to happen and the white papers are going to be released and it's it, it's very broad but if you get narrow and become a domain expert at one particular area, and, and that becomes your beachhead. You can always go back out. And that was a challenge we had because, you know, we were with some very large companies, but we were becoming a quasi services company is the reality. I didn't like to think we were because we always said we wanted to build a product that we could 
um, deliver and scale through our channels. Um, but because it can go into so many areas um, within an enterprise, that is a challenge, I believe, for most enterprise startups, is to say no and say, we're finishing our product, putting it in a box, and we're going to scale it. And that was John Clancy, co-founder and CEO of Chatspace. And you can find out more about the company and its return to work help desk services at chatspace.ai. That's chatspace.ai. That's it for our show this week. Our thank you to you for listening. Also, thanks to our sponsor, Fidelity Investments, who are hiring for tech roles in Ireland. Fidelityinvestments.ie is the website to virtually join a global leader in fintech innovation from the safety of your own home. Fidelityinvestments.ie. Remember, of course, you can also get the lowdown on all things tech here in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself to studios, after Nile Kitson, thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.